Listen, we're in a series that we call Common Ground, and uh, it is a uh, the, the area of grounds that we have covered have been vast, from racial reconciliation to social justice and a variety of other arenas of thought as well. And today we're continuing with that common ground, the, the commonness of what Christ would do as he would respond or define or help us in this whole adventure. And today we're privileged to have Sean McDowell, Dr. Sean McDowell. He teaches over at Biola University and has a variety of areas that he is able to speak on, and this happens to be one of those. He has a book on the whole topic of marriage and how the marriage has been defined and the validity the validity of uh, a true biblical marriage as well and the challenges that have come with some of those changes. So we're glad to have Sean with us. Sean is uh, married, has children. Uh, more importantly, he is the brother of Kelly Wells. And most importantly, he is the uncle of Jocelyn Wells, uh, who is right here at Calvary Church. And so we're so glad to have uh, jo- uh, Sean, I'm going to say Josh, Sean come and uh, share with us on the whole topic of marriage and uh, the challenges of the changing definitions as well. So let me pray for that and pray God's blessing as we learn and grow together in this whole area. Father God, we're thankful for the goodness that you have given to us. Lord, we're thankful for your word as uh, you have guided us and given us authority and structure and and, uh, your definition of all things as you see fit. So Lord, I pray that you would guide us as we come before you, for Sean as he shares with us and teaches us, and that we come with open hearts and minds, God, to continue to grow and understand how we should live as those followers of Jesus. And so we commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's welcome Josh. Uh, Josh, I'm so sorry. I got this in my brain. Bag. Sean, come on up. Oh. Thank you, Jim. It's no problem at all. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good to be here, see some familiar faces. Two years ago, I heard about this national conference, this movement that was taking place in Washington, D.C. It was called the Reformation Project. I'm curious by show hands, not the Reformation that took place 500 years ago, but the Reformation Project. How many of you are familiar with this? By show hands. One, two, three, handful. Okay. So this was started by a Harvard dropout by the name of Matthew Vines. Dropped out, he's about 25, 26, came home and lived with his parents because at Harvard he couldn't get the help he needed on, for his same-sex attraction. Came home, lived with his parents, decided to study every single book he could get his hands on, and came to the conclusion that the Bible is in favor of mutual, loving, monogamous, same-sex sexual relationships. Wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian. It did well and started this conference called the Reformation Project. I called up my friend Alan Schleeman. I said, we need to go not to stand outside and hold signs and picket. Certainly not my agenda. I know some of the leadership. But I wanted to see what is this about? What are they doing? What are they pushing for the church? So I went to this conference in Washington, D.C., And it was like any other evangelical conference you've been to. There were testimonies, there was meet and greet, there was coffee and donuts, there were messages, there was music. Except obviously the content was very different. There were multiple 90-minute sessions walking attendees through how to respond to the classical traditional arguments made for sex and marriage. I sat there listening thinking, this is unbelievably sophisticated. I'm not sure most pastors could respond to this. Not because I think it's right, but because I thought it's very creative. And they put a lot of energy into it. So after the first session, I'm sitting there and they said, flip around your name tag. And on the back is a number. 
We've assigned you to go to a classroom and now you're going to role play and practice these talking points. I'm sitting there thinking I didn't sign up for this, but this will be fun. And the whole goal is they're training people in these arguments to go back to their churches, their communities, and their homes. Essentially to have conversations with people and overturn and change the view that Christianity's held for 2,000 years about sex and marriage. So I go to this classroom and there's a lady up front. There's probably 20 of us. And imagine like two rows of chairs facing the front. We sit down, here's what she says. She says, we're going to role play and practice these talking points. But before we start, I think it'd be great if we went around the room and each of you shared why you're here at this conference and you're so passionate about this movement. (laughs) I definitely didn't sign up for that. Fortunately, I was about 75% of the way through, so I had time to think about my response, number one, and number two, to pray for wisdom. I'll tell you, they came to me and it was clear I was the only one in the room that held the traditional view of sexuality. But the stories before it came to me were heartbreaking stories. People told stories of coming out to their parents and their parents kicking them out of the home. Coming out to their youth pastor, youth pastor saying, you're not welcome here and not even continuing that relationship. So they finally came to me and I said, hi, my name is Sean McDowell. I teach at Biola University. And at this point, about half of them turned and looked at me like, who let this guy in the room? I said, if you know Biola, you know, I'm probably not theologically where you want me to be. In fact, I have some serious concerns about what I'm hearing taught here. But I want to read you something. They had passed out worship packets to everybody at the conference. You know what the front of it said? It said, you are welcome here. No matter where you've been on your journey, no matter where you are and what you've been through, you are loved and accepted here. I read it to him and I said, does this apply to me? And what did they have to say? Nope, you're a bigot. No, they didn't say that. I'm just kidding. They graciously welcomed me in and I said, look, I'm not here to rein in on anybody's party. I know your leadership. I was just here to learn and you and I actually have a lot in common. We think that what Jesus says about this issue matters. We think about what the Bible says matters. We think maybe as a whole the church hasn't always gotten this right, but we better get this issue right. But I want you to know something. The normal narrative is that people like me who hold the traditional view that the church has held 2,000 years are bigoted, hateful, homophobic, and intolerant. I want you to know that that's not always true. In fact, I care about and I love every single one of you here in this room. Now, why did I say that? Because that is the narrative, isn't it? As you heard from David Kinnaman a few weeks ago, if you just believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, that's considered, according to Barna's research, an extreme position. Can you imagine that? Now, we can beat our heads against the wall, we can mourn this, we can get angry, or we can try to respond without compromising truth, but in a gentle and a kind and a gracious way. I'm guessing all of you are like me, that you find yourselves in that moment like, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't ask for this situation with a friend, with a coworker, with a neighbor. How do I respond kindly to people? But how do I stay faithful to what the scriptures teach? Friends, we find ourselves at a cultural tipping point. I wrote a book on this with a friend of mine, John Stone Street. And a youth pastor said to him while we were writing the book, he said, "I I can't even talk about this with my students. It's over we've lost. There's a temptation to despair politically, 
culturally and morally with our country. But I know this. I know when times seem the darkest, God is often working His greatest good. Despair is not an option for Christians. Second, you might be thinking, but wait a minute, we Christians are on the wrong side of... Okay, this is the participatory part of the program. (laughs) You've heard the argument, right? You Christians are on the wrong side of... Everything. Well, that would sum it up. (laughs) The wrong side of everything. The wrong side of history, right? You're on the wrong side of slavery, the wrong side of racism. Now you're on the wrong side of history. Here's what I know, interestingly enough. When you go back to the first century Rome, I just did a blog on this this past week and have been studying this. There was far more sexual immorality in a way I won't even mention beyond what we see in our culture today. You know what's interesting? When Christianity came on the scene, guess what? Christianity and its view that said one man and one woman in a committed relationship for life was liberating for that culture. It was liberating. Friends, one thing I know is truth will always set us free. One analogy I like to use is take a beach ball. You push a beach ball under the water, it pops up over here. Push it on that side, it pops it up. We live in a culture that's increasingly saying, let's push down the beach ball, whether it's gender or marriage or what dignity means. But the problem is truth keeps popping itself up. That's why I think, despite what we increasingly hear, standing firm yet lovingly on the biblical position of sex and marriage is actually the compassionate and the loving thing to do. It is. Friends, you are always on the right side of history. If you're on the right side of history with what Jesus and Paul and the prophets taught. So what do we do at this cultural moment? Well, I think it might be helpful, number one. Actually, this weekend, I mentioned that conference in D.C. This weekend, they have their conference in L.A. trying to kick off a Southern California movement to reform the church from within. So I think it might be helpful if we just stop briefly and take a look at a biblical view of marriage. I think the reasonable place to go is in Genesis chapter 1. If you can't find it, well, you probably can't find anything in the Bible. (laughs) Genesis chapter 1. Very quickly. Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. Let's start with 27. Makes sense to start in Genesis because there's an entire sweeping sense of Scripture. And a consistency that's not always lived out, but is taught about marriage and sexuality. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his image. So he created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Friends, this is radical for a creation story, even to mention women, let alone say men and women equal image bearers before God. So Genesis 1, we learn that there's male and there's female. And we're called to multiply and populate the earth. Genesis chapter 1, pretty straightforward. Flip over to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Let's look at verse 20, uh, actually just 24. 2 verse 24. It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. And they shall become one flesh. 
Now notice what's happening here. It says a man shall leave his what? His father and mother. There's a pattern, biblically speaking, that it's not a man and three women. It's one man and it's one woman. They shall come together and become one flesh. Now, you know what that means? In the original Hebrew, essentially, it's a oneness in all areas. You become one financially, emotionally, physically, relationally, and spiritually. It's an entire oneness. Now, what's the idea, though? They came from a mother and a father. The man leaves, bonds with his wife, and becomes one oriented towards having children. Right? That's the pattern. And then they will have kids. They'll lead their mother and father. Remember Genesis chapter 1, they're called to populate and fill the earth. What does this tell us? At least a few things. Marriage is meant to be permanent. You leave and cleave. It's one man and it's one woman. And one of the functions of marriage is oriented towards having children and populating the earth. That's what we learn biblically about marriage. Now, here's what's interesting. I was in a conversation at at Biola shortly before the Obergefell decision, which was not this past June, but the June before, maybe 15 months ago. And the New York Times was covering it. Matthew Vines was there. um, Frank Sontag was there. Some local pastors. And we were talking about how is the church going to respond to the ruling at the Supreme Court? And I asked Matthew a question. I said, are you telling me that we have to change our theological position to be loving? Or can we hold the traditional view and still be loving? You know what he said? He said, unless you change your theology, you cannot be loving towards the LGBTQ community. That's a powerful claim. And then as we talked more, this passage came up. And I said, okay, wait a minute, think about this. One flesh... Do you know every single biological function you can perform as an individual? Respiration, digestion, walking, whatever function it is of the body, except for one. You know what it is? It's reproduction. It's as if the man and the woman each have half built to go together. And then it becomes a one wholeness. It's oriented towards having kids. That's why one of my friends pushed back and he goes, look in the Bible, why doesn't it explicitly spell out marriage and the sexual details? I said, well, because for one, if it did, then all of you skeptical friends would say the Bible's too crude, it can't be from God. But second, it's kind of obvious. (laughs) It's obvious. Genesis 1 and 2 says God created marriage, male and female, Two shall become one biologically, physically, spiritually, and it's oriented towards having kids. That's at least one of the goals and designs of marriage. Now, did Jesus weigh in on this? Interestingly enough, he did. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. If you can't find that, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Matthew. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus was not asked about same-sex marriage. Why? Because there was zero debate about this. From the far left to the far right, there was agreement among the Judeo-Christian worldview on the traditional view of marriage. Matthew 19, Jesus is asked about divorce, but listen to what he says. Matthew 19, verse 3. 
So some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for man to to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, which is interesting. He's appealing back to the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis, as being authoritative. That he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. Now what chapter is that from? Genesis what? Genesis chapter 1. Made them male and female. Then it says, and he also said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What chapter is that from? Genesis 2. Now if you're asked about whether somebody should get divorced or not, and Jesus answers it, which of these two passages is the only one he needs? Two. That's right. Because two says a man shall leave his father and mother, unite, become one. And he says, let not man separate what God has joined together. Jesus didn't even need to cite Genesis 1. Why does he cite it? It's as if he's going out of his way to say that marriage is a gendered institution between a man and between a woman. Friends, this is the worldview that Jesus held. I still think you should play the Jesus card in conversations. Most people still want to be on the side of Jesus. So at times I've been calling bigoted hateful. I'll say, you know what? Would you agree with me that Jesus is one of the great moral reformers of all time? Every time people have said yes. I said, if Jesus was so loving and transformed history and culture, and he held this view about marriage, how come it's all of a sudden bigoted for me to hold a different view? That's at least a fair question. Now, I know some of you are thinking, okay, I agree with you. I'm a Christian. I think the Bible's true. Can we make a case for marriage without using the scriptures? And I think we can. In fact, not only do I think we can, I think we must. I have traveled around the country, and I get to speak to really thousands of young people. It's fun. And one of my favorite things to do is to role play an atheist, put glasses on, become an atheist, and I invite questions from the audience, and we have this little debate. My goal is to make people think, am I ready to defend my faith? And one time I was going to role play arguing in favor of same-sex marriage. I went to this great Christian school. I start off two minutes into it. This girl raised her hand. She goes, Mr. McDowell, I really want to defend what the Bible teaches, but I don't have a clue how to do it. I don't think the vast majority of young people I get a chance to speak to have any idea how to defend without using the Bible that the biblical view of marriage, God bless you, my child, is true. Because my dad said something to me years ago. He said, son, if something is biblical, it's true. If something is true, it's biblical. So if the Bible teaches this about marriage, we should be able to look at the world and see that this is actually objectively what marriage is. So here's a more basic question to think about. Is marriage more like gravity or is it like the game Monopoly? Is marriage more like gravity or is it like the game uh, monogamy? I don't think that's a game, just for the record. (laughs) Take that one out of the script. Monopoly is a game. So what's the idea? Gravity exists whether you like it, whether you believe in it, whether you understand it. It's an objective feature of the world in which we live. Monopoly is an invented game. We can change it if we want to. Do you see the question? Is marriage something that's fixed, objective part about reality? Or is this something we can simply change? Now, here's a question I have. Most people say marriage has evolved and we have a right to it. My question is, wait a minute. 
If marriage has changed and evolved, then it's not something that's fixed that exists. And if it's not something that fixed and exists, then how can we have a right to it? So how do we make a case for marriage? Now, I'm going to come back to that, but let me lay the ground first. I want to say something that I hope will sink in. Same-sex marriage is not the root of the problem. Same-sex marriage is the fruit of the problem. This is the way John Stone Street and I put it in our book. Same-sex marriage is not the root of the problem. Same-sex marriage is the fruit of the problem. What I mean by this is there are certain changes that have been taking place for decades and even a century plus. And if we understand these changes and assumptions that people carry with them, then friends, same-sex marriage makes perfect sense. In fact, I would argue that failed heterosexual marriages, many within the church, have done more to harm marriage than same-sex marriage ever could. So how do we make a case for this? Well, here's, here's the underlying issues to think about. Just Here's the ideas that have been brewing in our culture as a part of the sexual revolution. And if you adopt these ideas, again, same-sex marriage makes perfect sense. Number one, sex is divorced from babies. Hasn't that been the heart of the sexual revolution? That's what the pill does. That's what birth control does. And I'm not saying I'm in favor or against birth control. I'm saying that's the natural result of birth control is that sex is divorced from making babies. It's no longer a procreative act. Second, marriage is about self-fulfillment. It's about finding your soulmate, such as in movies like The Notebook. Find your soulmate. Get your fulfillment. And if you fall out of love, there's no greater duty. Just move on and make sure you get fulfilled somewhere else. And third, gender differences are irrelevant. They're irrelevant. If you adopt these three ideas, that sex has nothing to do with making babies, that marriage is about self-fulfillment, and gender is irrelevant, then of course... Same-sex marriage makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. So here's a simple case. I'd encourage you to write this down. I don't have to write stuff down. I have photographic memory. I just don't have any film. (laughs) If you didn't get that, ask somebody over 30. Maybe 35. Here's a simple case. Number one, sex makes babies. Sex makes babies. Number two, society needs babies. And number three, babies need a mom and a dad. So let's start with the first one, sex makes babies. You might be thinking, why are we spending time on this? You want to know why? One of my favorite people that writes on this issue, Dr. Roback Morse. She's Catholic, and she taught at Yale University for years in economics. And she was at a university having a discussion with a a professor who was far to the left of her. And Dr. Robach Morris said, well, we all know that sex makes babies. Her opponent says, no, it doesn't. She goes, really? Like, this is interesting. What did I miss? She goes, really? She goes, no, sex doesn't make babies. Broken contraception makes babies. (laughs) And she was dead serious. Now, we can laugh at this, and we should, but there are certain ideas being so deeply embedded in our culture that are non-intuitive. Sometimes we've got to take a step back and even make the case for things. I sent out a tweet that said, babies need a mom and a dad, and this activist wrote back to me. He goes, how arbitrary, random, and hateful. I'm like, oh my goodness, how have we come to this point in culture? 
So the first one is we just got to realize that sex makes babies. Sex by its very nature is a procreative act. Second, society needs babies. Don't believe me? Look at China right now. There's a huge disparities between males and females. And you know China has flipped its, two, its one child policy started in 1979. Now they have not only flipped it, there's a massive propaganda from the country trying to encourage people to have more babies. Because you have to have enough workers to support those who retire. They're having essentially, I mean, they're having huge problems in China right now. In Japan, they've been experimenting with robots who will care for the elderly because they've had so few children, they don't have enough workers and people to care for those who age. Society needs babies. That's why the government ever got interested in marriage in a way it didn't get interested in your tennis partner. Society has been invested in having healthy children to fulfill the next generation. Sex makes babies. Society needs babies. Third, babies need a mom and a dad. Babies need a mom and a dad. Now, please hear me before I go any further. I am not, trust me, I'm not critiquing you if you're a single mom or you're a single dad. Please don't hear me saying that. Single moms and single dads are my heroes. I don't know how you do it. It is hard enough with three little kids being married to my wife. We're exhausted. We're tired. We have those frustrated moments. It's hard enough. I don't know how you do it as a single parent. My purpose is not to critique you. I want to hold you up as a model, and I pray this church gets around you and strengthens you. But I know every single mom and single dad I've said, I've talked to have said, I wish it wasn't this way. And I wish my kids could have a mom or a dad. Friends, studies show that moms and dads bring different elements to the parenting table. Now our society is working really hard to pretend, and I mean pretend, as if there's no difference between males and females. That any two parents are equal. Now, I'm not going to say that gay parents can't be loving. Of course they can be loving. There should be no question about that. Of course they can be. Your sexual orientation or preference doesn't affect your ability to be loving, but that doesn't change the fact that men and women are different and bring something different to the table when loving kids. You say, ah, I'm not quite convinced. I don't know why I buy it. Well, let me give you a couple examples to to think about. You know, when Obama picked his Supreme Court, let me take a step back. Around 2012, with the encouragement of Joe Biden, Obama came out in favor of same-sex marriage. First president to support it and push it. Now, if you're in favor of same-sex marriage, you essentially have to say that gender is irrelevant for the raising of kids. Gender doesn't matter. You have to believe that to be in favor of same-sex marriage. But ironically, not the most recent Supreme Court justice, but the two before that that came up for President Obama, what gender were they? Kagan Sotomayor, females. Why did he select them? 
because we need a female in the office. They see the world differently, will vote differently, and represent women better than men. Do you see the irony? I'm in favor of same-sex marriage, which says gender is irrelevant. But on the other hand, when it comes to the Supreme Court, I realize that gender actually matters, and it's important. It's like pushing a beach ball under the water. It's going to pop up because we know it makes a difference. Look, just think about your kids. I'm going I'm to give you a parent and a gender, and you imagine which one this is. This parent comes home, maybe from work or a trip. Kids meet this parent at the door. Parent puts his bag down. Oh, I blew it. <laughs> oh, I just can't speak with the new gender requirements of pronouns as hard as I try. Picks up his kids, throws them in the air. The other parent is very worried, wrestles with the kids on the floor. Right now, you know exactly who I'm talking about. I'm not saying moms don't do that, but moms and dads tend to relate to their kids differently. Look, I have a daughter who's nine. She's in gymnastics, loves volleyball. She's a cute kid. You'll see her here in the next service. I bought a gun. I don't care about California rules. Actually, I didn't buy a gun just for the record. I'm tempted to, though. Why? Because when she gets into her teenage years, I'm going to have a very different perspective on this than my wife. I'm a little bigger than my wife. I have a deeper voice, and I know exactly what 13-year-old boys are thinking because I was one. You better believe I will have a different vested interest in how she's raised than my wife does. Look, a friend of mine, Frank Turkey, says, if somebody says gender doesn't matter, imagine that you have a business and you have a marketing plan. And in this plan, you have a group that's men and women, and you have a group that's only men trying to come up with a way to market this product. Is it going to look different with the insights of a woman? Of course it is. Of course it is. We intuitively know this. In fact, I think we intuitively know that biology even matters. I think we do. Some of you might remember about a year ago, there's a lady by the name of Rachel Dolezal. She was the African, she's the president of her division in the Northeast of the NAACP. And she taught at a university African-American studies. But there's one glaring problem. She was white. She was white. Now she had convinced everybody she's black. Her parents came out and are like, nope, she's white. You know what she said? She said, I've always felt this way. I was born this way. I relate to African Americans. You know what the outcry was? No, wait a minute. She's not black. Biology matters. But then when it comes to same-sex marriage, no, be quiet. Biology doesn't matter. Because when I know friends, as hard as we try with certain agendas in our culture to push truth underwater, it's going to pop up. Sex makes babies. Society needs babies. And babies need a mom and a dad. Now, what do we do? I wish I had time to go into depth on some of these. Let me just offer three thoughts that might be helpful. Number one, be willing to have conversations with people about this. Please be willing to talk about it. Don't shy away from engaging people in conversations. Now, you can only do this if you know what you believe and why about marriage. So you might have to do a little research. You might have to think about this. 
Once you know it, have conversations. But here's the way to frame it. If somebody, so I was sitting in physical therapy like two weeks ago. And this guy's talking to us and another guy comes in. And my, I kid you not, he goes, so what do you think about homosexuality? Like with all these people around me, how do you answer that? Do you just play it off? Do you change the subject? What do you say? How do we respond? Well, here's something I've learned. Whenever somebody asks me, so what do you think about abortion? What do you think about euthanasia? What do you think about racism? What do you think about same-sex marriage? And I sense there might be some disagreement. Here's what you do. You simply say, hey, that's a great, important question. Thanks for asking and caring what I think. Do you mind if I ask you a question back? Sure. Are you a person who is open-minded, tolerant, and values diverse views of opinion different than your own? What's everybody going to say? Nope, I'm a bigot. <laughs> Everybody's going to say, oh, yes, I'm open-minded, I'm diverse, I'm inclusive. You say, great, because I sense we might differ, and I would love to hear what you think, and I'll listen to it, and I'll value it. And in fact, if you're right, I'll change my mind. I'm glad to know you'll treat me the same. And then you tell them what you think. If they jump and go, oh, that's hateful, you go, wait a minute, you just said you're open-minded. Now you're insulting me. Which is it? If the person keeps insulting you, don't have the conversation. <laughs> but my experience is the vast majority of people, if you are kind, if we are gracious, if we listen to them and value them as people, will be willing to have conversations with us, even about these sensitive matters. And a lot of people have never even heard a case for natural marriage. So have conversations, but just be thoughtful and strategic in how you do it. Second, I want to show you a quick video. I, on, on my website, I do a video each week on a tough subject, and I found this youth pastor who had a story. I had to interview him. We are backstage at this big youth event, so you'll hear like the music booming. But listen to the story of how he built relationships with the community and how this led to powerful fruit for the gospel. Take a look. I'm here with my new friend Seth, a youth pastor in Ohio, and he shared a story with me about how he showed love to the LGBT club and students on his campus, and it's a story you've got to hear. So you're a youth pastor, yep. you hold the traditional view, the traditional biblical view about sexuality, and yet you became the club director for an LGBT club. How on earth did this happen? So I was working with youth and family services at the school district that I was in and helping out with everything that they were doing and some kids came in one day and said i need a director for a club and i was like okay i could do that i didn't really know what the club was and i got there and it was an lgbt club and did they know you were a christian they did know i was a christian because i was a pastor in the community okay so. now what were their conversations like what happened in the club it, it started off with like just everybody doesn't like us everybody hates us uh no one cares for us including um, christians that's how they view the it, christians thought every them. everybody it was everyone thought that way and then it turned to uh you're a christian you're supposed to hate us and that started opening up conversation with those students all the time so where, did it turn towards spiritual conversations in the LGBT club at all? It became where I could take my Bible out in a secular school uh, and open my Bible and share with the LGBT community about everything that was the Bible said about that. And we got away from what does the Bible say about homosexuality and what does it say about Jesus? 
Wow. So they were willing to listen because you knew you cared about them. There was a relationship Correct. there, and they had spiritual just like everybody else does. Absolutely. And they, they weren't scared of asking questions because I had already created a relationship with them beforehand. They didn't feel judged by me. They knew I cared about them. How did this change you in the process? Man, when I started, I was so um, I was so against like the LGBT community. I was just like, man, I can't stand you. I I, um, I was I was really hard in my heart, and it broke me to see that there are students struggling with a a problem, a sin that they're struggling with anyways. So what happened with some of them? Didn't they come, end up coming to your youth group and becoming believers? Kids came to our youth group. Uh, four of them started coming on a regular basis, and three of them trusted in Christ. Man, praise the Lord. Friends, I wanted you to hear this, because here's an example of someone stepping outside of his comfort zone. Even though you, you held the traditional view of sexuality, you stepped out of your comfort zone and showed love to a group that really feels like Christians hate them, and in turn, three or four of them ended up trusting Christ. My encouragement is, and this is true for all of us, step outside of our comfort zone. Just show the love and grace of Christ to people, LGBT people, all people. And it's amazing how many will be res will be open and respond to the gospel when you do it in love and in grace. Proud of you, buddy. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for coming on. Okay. Isn't that awesome? In my experience, so much at the heart of the LGBT movement, the marriage movement, and many other movements in our country is hurt and brokenness and questions of belonging. Do you love me? Will you stand by me? Do you care for me? Friends, I'm convinced if we step outside of our comfort zone, build relationships, don't compromise truth. We can't. Jesus didn't. Paul didn't. Knowing that it's the truth that sets people free. I'm convinced that God can use us today, even in what increasingly seems to be like difficult times for Christians. Amen? Dave, come on up here. and Thanks, that, one. That, that, that was pretty fast for an 85-year-old guy, by the <laughs> <Yeah>. way. <laughs> I only look 85. I'm not really 85. Okay. So okay. Uh, listen, I think one of the themes that uh, keeps coming in our Common Ground series, it all often, what was the racial reconciliation and social uh, justice, it always comes down to relationships. I think that's right. So I really appreciated seeing that uh, young guy over mm -hmm. there and uh, the work that he's doing and how we can do that as well. I know that a lot of people may have questions about some of these things, and we got personal stories as well. Tell us a little bit about Wednesday night. You're going to be here yeah. back? And... Wednesday night, coming back. Uh, my brother-in-law, Michael, invited me. We're going to have a panel. I'm not going to give a talk, but going to open up for your questions, for your thoughts, for your situations, whether it's theological questions or practical questions you might have with family members, with friends. And let's face it, we find ourselves with some tough questions today. And sometimes there's not always easy answers. But we will do our best Wednesday night to unpack this a little bit and just kind of give you some courage and confidence how to deal with this pressing issue. So mm -hmm. it's, it's going to be fun. And Stephen Barr Paulson is going to be there. I think, did I see Stephen Barr? There you are. Uh, going to be with us as well. They have a ministry called Cross Current and work in the same area in general uh, words. And so come and engage together with us. Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, right over here in the Fellowship Hall. And uh, so we can grow together, know how to uh, responsibly interact with people. And it doesn't, whether it's the gay community or another community mm. or another area of struggles, mm. we're here to be 
the person of Christ to the world that needs him. And that's just the way Jesus did it. And so we're going to follow him as well. So thank you, Sean. We sure appreciate you being with us. And you're going to be out in the uh, lobby. I'm going to sneak to the back. There's some resources out there. There's a bunch of books, but two that might help you is I brought the book Same-Sex Marriage. The best thing is it's short. (laughs) Quick, easy read, but everything I talked about and even in more depth and examples if this helps you or want to pass it on to somebody else. Then there's a study Bible back there for students on apologetics, all the type of topics you've been dealing with. And they're basically half off essentially my cost for these new leather ones, if that helps you. One more thing I have to plug. If you've been moved by this series and you care about students, 16 to 22, please think about sending your kids to Summit. Summit is a 12-day worldview apologetic conference. It's in other parts of the country, last two weeks at Biola. It's a game changer for students. So if you ask me about that, I'd love to tell you more about it, but that's a special opportunity for students Think about sending there. Thanks for having me, Dave. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And just think about sending your students to Biola, period. Uh, You get folks like Sean and others and held fast to the traditional views, but helps to think through in the challenging, changing world in which we live. I'd like for us to pray and pray about certainly these issues. We're going to receive our offering now, and we're grateful for the generosity of so many of you who help us over 85 years, and we're aiming for 100 years, and so we want to continue to support what God is doing. And as we have, you know, for 85 years, we've not changed what we believe from the Scriptures at all. And so not every church can say that as well, and we are thankful for the privilege to be able to represent the Lord in our community. So let's uh, pray, and we'll receive our offering. Father God, we thank you uh, for the reminder that uh, relationships that love people are impactful and can be life-changing. Lord, thank you for that youth pastor that we heard and his willingness to step into an uncomfortable setting and to be able to love people that needed to be loved. And uh, God, I pray that we would be people like that as well, as Sean has challenged us and encouraged us to be able to live that life out with knowing what we believe but also expressing what we believe to those around us in a way that causes them to be attracted to Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for our ministries here. Thank you again for the 85 years and ongoing ministries that we pursue. And uh, Lord, it's because people give. It's because people respond, because they contribute, because they see themselves as part of a bigger story that's unfolding. And so, Lord, thank you for these offerings as we receive it and continue to carry on your work. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.